Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021 and to have our guests participating on an exciting panel at that event. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And this summer, it's Solana summer, there's no bigger idea uh, than, than the growth of Web3 and decentralized finance. We're very excited to bring you a special SALT talk with Anatoly Yakovenko uh, of Solana. Anatoly is the, cre uh, the creator of Solana. Uh, he led development of operating systems at Qualcomm for more than a decade, distributed systems at Mesosphere and compression at Dropbox. He holds two patents for high performance operating systems protocols, was a core kernel developer for Brew, which powered every CDMA flip phone, and led development of the tech that made Project Tango ARVR uh, possible on Qualcomm phones. Hosting today's SALT talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. It was the first fund of funds and first registered 40-act fund to make direct allocations into the crypto space. So we like to think we know a few things about crypto, but certainly not anywhere near the level of our great guest today, Anatoly. We're excited to have you. With that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to drive the majority of the interview. So, you know, before we got started uh, recording, I said to Anatoly, his backdrop makes him look like he's coming in from the future, okay? And so that is more or less the truth about your life, Anatoly. So you're a hardcore engineer. You spent most of your career at Qualcomm. Uh, tell us more about your background that led you to build Solana. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm an engineer by trade. I went to University of Illinois. Started really my engineering career there at a startup with some friends that were, you know, I was trying to build voice over IP phones. This was back in 2001, 2002, and saw the dot-com crash as a student. And then at that time, my like, advisors were telling me that uh, computer science would not be a good you know, career choice. <laughs> but <laughs> ended up in San Diego, you know, working for Qualcomm and started really working in optimizations, all things making, you know, making software faster. Um, from day one. And really, my experience there, I, I got to see the mobile revolution. If you guys remember, flip, you know, phones in 2003 were not, were not like the supercomputers that we hold in our hand today. And that transition happened over a decade and really powered by the amazing people at Qualcomm, at TSMC, across all the fabrication, you know, the entire fabrication industry and, and mobile chips. That was a, a huge you know, 10 million person effort, right, around the world to make that possible. Um, and I was working on a small piece of it, you know, writing high performance firmware. Um, but seeing that transition really showed the power of Moore's law to me. And this is something that has been kind of like, you know, exponentials are really, really fast uh, from far away. You know, 20 years is a thousand X improvement. But in, in the moment right now, you know, it's going to take two years just to see a doubling in, in performance. And that may seem like really slow. You, you talk about the epiphany that you had. Um, and uh, you, you were talking about the construction of an arrow of time. 
and what you set out to do with Solana. Explain what that means to our audience. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's an interesting problem in mathematics is there is no clear definition of time. You know, Einstein's equations work in both directions, forwards and backwards. And we, we take this for granted, you know, as engineers, uh, you look at something like second generation cellular networks. Uh, there were these things called time division multiple access networks. It literally means that you have a, a source of time that tells which cell phone, which tower has the right to transmit over a certain frequency. And that's how all these networks get coordinated and, and folks can then transmit information to a large number of people across the same channel, the same shared channel that is rotated through time. This was, you know, first thing an engineer thought of when they, when they started building these things. Um, and that's really hard to pull off in crypto and blockchain because this new kind of technology is built with uh, very different trust assumptions. There is no AT&T. There is no FCC, right? There is no central authority that says what time it is or who gets to produce a block or who gets to be what part of the network. And that's a really tough, challenging problem. So this epiphany that I had once I realized that there's a way to construct a source of time that doesn't depend on a central authority, doesn't depend on AT&T or anything like that, or FCC, then we can start building the same level of high-performance wireless kind of optimizations, but not applied to blockchain, not applied to crypto. So, uh, you know, I'm going to put it this way because I think it's appropriate. Uh, part of your genius is taking ideas from your prior life experience and watching them unfold in cellular technology and then applying them to blockchain. So, uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, I want you to react to this. Steve Jobs once said that genius is a remix of ideas and seeing things on parallel planes that somehow connect. Is that true in your case? I'm, I'm 100%. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, you know, all, all the stuff that we're doing, uh, the algorithms were like, you know, worked out in the 50s and 60s, the engineering was done in the 70s and 80s, and now we get to apply it to these new emerging technologies over and over as engineers. So, like, we, we get to reuse the experience and the, the brilliance of all these amazing people that, that came before us, for sure. So, you know, there's a difference between proof of stake and proof of work. And so there are many listeners here that don't know the difference. If you could describe what the difference is between proof of stake and proof of work. So, oh, that's a tough question. Uh, it's hard to describe because the problem is hard to explain. It's how do you trust anybody in the internet, right? Like, how do you know that when you make a poll on Twitter and you say, do you think that, you know, uh, omelets are the best breakfast that you see, you know, you see those votes that actually come from people instead of bots. But that's a tough problem. And proof of work is a way to solve it by forcing every vote to contain a proof that some amount of electricity was spent to generate. So somebody somewhere had to go and burn some energy to do it. And that's how uh, Nakamoto consensus or Bitcoin and Ethereum, the current network, and most of the other major Experiences work. Um, but this is, you know, widely energy inefficient. So it costs a lot of money to, to do this process because you have to go pay somebody for the electricity to go generate those proofs. Um, proof and of stake, and, yeah, and so, so proof of stake, 
is better than proof of work? It's different. So the cool thing about proof of work is that it's real physics, right? It's real electricity. There's no way for somebody to to, uh, to fake it. Uh, and the way that proof of stake works is that it relies on a common agreement of what the network is, and then a way to split the weights of those votes and transfer those votes cryptographically. So equally secure from a from a consumer's perspective. Right. Like, but fundamentally, they're, they're kind of two sides to the same coin, but different sides, you know. Um, proof of stake doesn't require any energy, but requires a lot more software complexity, a lot more infrastructure. Kind of, I think it takes more, more resources, uh, brain resources to run. You know, you got to like just, just, just spend a lot more time making sure that everything, that the keys are secure, that there's no way for attackers to go, uh, leak them and a bunch of other stuff. Proof of work in it is in a lot of ways kind of much, much simpler. You know, it's like a, it's like a very, it's like a, you know, like a motorcycle, uh, gas motor, right? There's two cylinders in it. You pour the gas in and it runs <laughs> versus like something like, you know, uh, like a Tesla where it's a much more complicated system, but much more efficient. Okay. Uh, I think you did a great job explaining that there's a lot of maximalism and tribalism in crypto. Uh, some people are Bitcoin maximalists. Some people are Solana maximalists. Others are ETH maximalists. What do these guys get wrong, if anything? Or are they right? And should everybody be a Solana maximalist? So, so I see this as a, in emerging technologies, like over and over. I mean, I remember when people were fighting over Linux file systems. Like there were maximalists that believed that a certain kind of file system for your Linux distribution was better than anything else. Uh, and it's... I think this comes from when you're building something really complicated, like a personal computer, right? Like where there's a, an, the idea is much bigger than the technology and the technology is so complex that you start to rely on your gut feel of what is, what is going to bring about like change in the world, right? Is it going to be Apple, this vertically designed thing? And I'm become an Apple fanboy and an Apple maximalist. Is it going to be Linux and open source community? Or is it going to be Microsoft, right? This, vertically integrated company with a great founder. Like it, it's really tough to like make those decisions in a very objective way. And that's, I think, the source of maximalism. And I think in some ways, it's just part of the growth process of any new emerging transformative technology. If, if we thought that crypto was going to be, you know, like a fad, we wouldn't have maximum. Like it, it would just go away and peter off. But because it's such an idea that is so big and so much bigger than anything else, that I think this is where where it comes from. When people really try to grasp it, right, and try to understand it and fit all on all in, in your head, but it's it's so big and it's pretty hard to do. All right, well, you're doing a great job. So I want to keep going here, um, uh, and I hope you don't mind the complexity of these questions. But I think it's important for our our listeners, because you're at the forefront of something, they're watching something emerge and prosper and grow exponentially. And I think uh, learning from you as the founder, I think is super important. It's sort of like uh, we're right here at the inception. Uh, let's talk about Sam Bankman Freed, a favorite of yours and a favorite of mine, and also John Darcy's. Uh, Sam is the CEO and founder of FTX. Uh, he's really building the first uh, uh in my opinion, I think he has the capability, at least, of building the industry standard, the Microsoft, the Tesla, the Google 
of crypto with FTX. And so he's a brilliant young man. Um, he decided to build FTX's decentralized exchange known as Serum on top of Solana. He's pretty impressive. So how did you convince him to pick Solana and why do you think he picked Solana? So, yeah, we had our first conversation, not like literally a couple of weeks after we launched. And that was a year and a half ago, not, not even that long ago, less than a year and a half ago. And we showed him this demo where it's a very simple page. You load it and you start smashing your keys and you see a cryptocurrency transaction fired off and get confirmed as fast as you can type. So every keystroke was generating a, a transaction. And when you compare that to something like Ethereum or even the competitors that have launched since today, um, there's a stark difference between the user experience of dealing with this network with there versus what you see now. Um, and that's really what like set up the light bulbs in, in the in their head, right? And Sam said and their engineers, and really from the from the engineering team came this like drive, let's build the best version of a decentralized exchange. We know how to build the best version of a centralized exchange. Let's do the same. And now it's possible. This is something that they've been wanting to do internally for a very long time. So they incubated this, this project, Serum, and now it's got a lack of its own. There's independent developers that are building on it, working on, you know, next versions of it. And it's, uh, you know, in a, it's really cool to have somebody like Sam um, that has a centralized service to commit to building something that could disrupt them, like, like fully commit to it, right? Like, how often do you see that? Right? Like, I think Steve Jobs and, and like seeing how the iPad and the iPhone disrupted their iPod sales, right? Like, which is the biggest driver of revenue for them, fully commit to something, a new product line that was risky, but totally disruptive to, to the entire industry. So that Sam as a person and as a founder and a CEO definitely deserves a lot of respect for that. Well, you know, and I and I I am an admirer of his and yours, but I'm also an admirer of Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, ben Horowitz spoke at our event in 2019 before the pandemic. Um, after your third hackathon this past May, um, A16Z uh, became enthusiastic about Solana, and uh, they began the process of validating and investing in Solana. Tell us about that experience. Um, you know, we, we've also, you know, we're, we're in Silicon Valley. We've talked to to them a bunch of times, and the biggest question was that: Is it possible to build a new ecosystem that is not really separate from Ethereum? Right, a, a whole new set of applications, new operating system, new ways for developers to build these things. That was a, a big risky question, right? Is there going to be developer adoption? And what we saw over the, the year that since we launched was that there's a large portion of devs that are ready to go and build in different kinds of tools. And they see these technologies as tech stacks, like as they should. As an engineer said, when they look at Ethereum or, or any of these chains, they should look at it. Here's a technology that can do features X, Y, and Z at this cost. I'll pick the best one for my product, right? And we saw that being proven true. And we saw this really massive explosion in the ecosystem of devs coming in to build. Um, you know, we had like prizes in our hackathons, um, you know, for seed funding. And these were like, you know, I think the DeFi hackathon had like a prize of 200,000 potential funding for a team that wins it. 
But before the hackathon was even finished, there were, I think, over 10 teams that have raised over a million each already. <laughs> so there was so like what we saw was that teams that are have founders that want to build a new business, right? Like a whole new company running on top of Solana. They saw their eyes light up and they saw the performance and the benefits of the, the network, the infrastructure, and they were able to build a product, an MVP, and raise funding in those like four weeks that we ran the hackathon without like us even being a main driver of that. So this was really to me like a sign that we're we're onto something and I think a sign to everyone else. So how would you then if you had to tell people what is the difference between Ethereum and Solana? Um <laughs> short short version, it's it's like uh it's it's like when Intel shipped the multi-core chip. You know, like we're we're the multi-core, we're the the massively multi-core version of, of a single CPU processor. Like you can think of it as, as that transition in, in the hardware where we went from single single speed networks to now like very parallelizable high performance networks. So so can as as a result of that, okay, can Ethereum catch up? Can they create applications that can make them or innovations that can make them multi-core? There's different ways to approach this. So Ethereum and Ethereum 2 and the way it's designed, um, the way I like to, I, I make this kind of morbid analogy is that Solana is designed as like, as you build a nuclear first strike detector, right? You want to maximize the number of sensors you have and how hard it is to break into all of these sensors and how hard it is to corrupt the entire network. Ethereum 2 is designed so there's uh, some survivors left after the attack to tell you that it happened. <laughs> so, which is a different thing, right? You're building these shards and you're building a network which is maybe slower, uh, but in some ways um, has some different properties that, which is what Ethereum 2 and their vision is going after. And some of the ways you can think about it in terms of like, well, what do I care as a user? In finance, you have these things called settlement, you know, platforms, things that do settlement, right? And then you have exchanges and every, everywhere where execution and clearing occurs. I like to think of like, if you were to apply like a financial lens to it and think of it only from decentralized finance from that application, Solana is the execution layer that can connect to a bunch of different settlement layers, right? Ethereum is a settlement layer that can connect to a bunch of different execution layers. So we're, we're, as a network, right, the hardware and the design and everything else that Solana is built for is to be this global place for execution, price discovery. Uh, in my mind, this is where all the fun innovation occurs, right? I can name a dozen companies that do trading exchanges. I don't know a single settlement platform. <laughs> okay, no, no, listen, that makes sense. I want to shift gears before I get John involved. He's the uh, millennial. Anatoly, so he's going to try to ask better questions than me, okay? Um, but you're older than him, so I want you to defend me. But before I get him involved, um, you have this major NI NFT project called Degenerate Apes. Now, now, where did the name come from? First, is that just another name for human beings, Degenerate Apes? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that's basically what from. it is, right? We're all just de yeah. Degenerate Apes. <laughs> and so now you've launched this on Solana. It is an incredible... So 
this was uh, an artist, a random artist. Yeah, yeah let me New rephrase Zealand. that. A okay. random artist launched this on Solana. I'm sorry, I wanted to rephrase that to make sure that it's accurate. But it's an artist that came up with these degenerate apes. It's on Solana. People are super enthusiastic about it. But I think it's something important for the validation of Solana. So tell us what that is. Um, so, you know, again, it's really tough to to show that Ethereum's network effects are are not a mode, right? Like everyone, until somebody actually shows and proves that that consumers really care about the speed and price and like the use of the network more so than the Ethereum of it, right? Like that is called Ethereum. What they care about is the experience, right? More than, than the network itself. You have to go and prove it. And, you know, this is something that we suspected was going to happen eventually. We didn't know where or how or why. And this project launched uh, by this artist that maybe is, you know, cool looking NFTs, you know, that look like apes. They're, you know, adorable, like I guess they're cool. <laughs> and uh, it had a positive, like, viral network effects. And what we saw was that uh, people really liked the experience, right? They, they cared more about the product, about this, the art that this artist was making, much more so than they cared about what network they saw. And because Solana was cheap and fast, it never got in the way, right, of that experience. And this is what we, you know, we hope to see more of that. Like, as artists launch, they should pick Solana as a network because we will never get in the way, right? It's just like, you know, you don't want to know that Qualcomm is the modem that, that is running inside your iPhone. You just never want it to fail. Right? You never you never want to have the, the bad experience, right? You basically want to forget about it. John Dorsey, by the way, Anatoly, congratulations, Anatoly. What you're doing is nothing short of brilliant. And uh, I'm sending you a big hug and I'm wishing for even greater success for you and uh, the Solana uh, ecosystem. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, to, to go with your analogy, Anatoly, you know, I, I I'm, this is not an Ethereum bashing session by any means, but, you know, almost Ethereum is a, a gas powered car. There's gas stations all around the country, all around the world. It's easy to fill up. People use it almost by default, despite you know some warts on that uh, on that protocol. Solana is you know the Tesla, early stage Tesla of of the crypto ecosystem, where once the infrastructure is there and the network effect is there to support the charging stations and everything you need, uh, you know it, it seems like Solana has sort of the the advanced tech uh, to lead sort of the Web three revolution. Is that sort of the way you guys look at? It? Is that in terms of network effects, it's all about you know creating projects like the uh, Degenerate Apes. And, and then we'll talk about Star Atlas in a second, but just how important are those network effects? So uh, I think like the there is a difference between like settlement and execution. And it's just, I'm not sure that you can design a network that could be best at both, right? So if you're, if you're like folks like Ethereum, they're coming in from this idea of self-sovereign money and Bitcoin and what that is. And what they're really focused on is competing with Bitcoin and this idea that you can have a global currency, right? That is self-driven and self-sustaining and settlement becomes the most important thing about, about feature. You almost have to pick every, every time you make an engineering decision, you have to pick that as the most important factor, right? Like no matter what. <laughs> and we're coming right. in as like communications, Falcon folks, and I'm, I'm looking at this thing, okay, censorship resistance is the most interesting thing that separates a blockchain from a database. 
And the use cases that are interesting there are this idea of, you know, decentralized finance, price discovery. How do we optimize for that? How do we optimize for the execution layer? Um, it's possible that, you know, there's no proof, or at least I haven't, you know, but no one's really tried to build one, but in my gut kind of engineering level check, it's really hard to do both. It's like a Pareto efficient problem. Like what we're doing is really going to be the fastest possible way to do price discovery, like execution, but the settlement final state can occur in any number of networks. And you see that already with like the number one trading pair on Serum is Bitcoin against USDC. None of those are natively issued tokens on Solana, right? Somebody else right. guarantees settlement of Bitcoin, Circle guarantees settlement of USDC, and that's fine, right? Like that's those are just two different goals. Um, and like, what do you do? Will deliver is a cheaper version of that, but and like the way that it's designed is never going to be as fast as responsive to user events as something that we're building, which is, you know, let's let's be let's beat Nasdaq. Let's get let's uh, get you know put Nasdaq out of business. That is that is like as close to this idea of information propagating through a censorship persistent network at the same speed as news. Like as financial news travels around the world and makes impact on prices, we want to be competitive with that speed, speed of like the fiber. Right. And, you know, the idea of decentralization, there's a lot of uh, things in what people would deem as crypto that are not actually decentralized. And especially as as crypto becomes institutionalized, it's sort of a magic word in crypto. A lot of times decentralization goes away. You talked about somebody like Sam Bankman-Fried, who has a centralized exchange, also investing in a decentralized exchange with Serum that's built on top of Solana. There's an interesting idea around the Nakamoto coefficient. I think Balaji, uh, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, first coined the term, but it talks about um, you know, the true decentralization of different blockchains. You know, uh, Bitcoin is famous as a proof of work blockchain that it requires 51% of, uh, of users on that network in order to basically corrupt or take over the network. Proof of stake blockchains, the Nakamoto coefficient is lower but Solana, in terms of proof of stake blockchains, has the highest Nakamoto coefficient. Can you talk about why that is and why that's important? Yeah, and this is back to that analogy that I made of, of like surviving the nuclear strike versus protecting it. <laughs> and again, like decentralization is a meaningless term, and there's a lot of ways to look at it. And fundamentally, everyone should go look at read through that article by Biology, but basically like Given all of these different ways to look at it, what is the smallest way we can draw a circle around the parts of the network that if we destroyed that piece, that the network would halt, right? Or the network would be corrupted in some way. And that's really like that like minimum, minimum uh, surface area for an attack. Um, in consensus specifically, and why this matters is specifically to price discovery or execution of like orders and flow and information flow is if you have a business default tolerance system, if you control more than 33% of the nodes of the, the state, the voting in that, in that thing, you can decide the order of events. And that means that I have 33% of the state and hedge fund A wants to transfer dollars from Binance to Coinbase and Hedge Fund B wants to transfer also dollars from Binance to Coinbase, I get to pick which one goes first, right? <laughs> and that's a, 
that's a problem, right? That's a problem for finance. I can't corrupt the state. I can't steal anyone's money, right? I can't like create the network and cause it to summon with your keys that guarantee that you have custody. But I can definitely pick the winners and the losers. And for some use cases, that doesn't matter. And settlement, I think, is one of those use cases where order of events no longer matters, right? It doesn't matter if hedge fund A gets settled eventually, you know, first or second, you know, within some reasonable time frame. And that's that's kind of the idea of self-sovereign money and Bitcoin. Their former censorship resistance is that if I have my keys, I have my Bitcoin, and I submit a transaction that maybe not today, but within weeks, so definitely months or years, somebody will eventually process it, right? Like there will be at least one honest block producer and enough of them in a row to guarantee its settlement. But more the the use case that I think is more interesting is like in real time. There's orders, there's there's trading, all this information that's being locked up in NASDAQ, locked up at NYSE, at CME, and de- decentralized finance being the primary use case of that. You really need to guarantee that it's uh, it's as hard to corrupt as possible. And it'll never going to be perfect without becoming centralized and then taking on that responsibility yourself. But the only way to guarantee it is to maximize the minimum set of independent operators that add up to that 33%. So it becomes much, much harder to draw that circle to make that set of that sub-network that can pollute and start corrupting the information flow. Um, right. So this is really like the the number one parameter that we're focused on. And because of that, a lot of the engineering designs kind of flow from that. It has to be super high performance. It has to process a lot of messages. It has to do a lot of cryptographic signatures, and you end up with something that is quite opposite of Ethereum 2 or any other competitor networks that are more focused on the settlement piece. So that right. that that I think kind of when I you know when I was when we first started building Solana, I was like I thought everyone else was going to do the exact same thing because it was so obvious to me. Like this is the most important thing of these networks. It's the censorship resistant piece. The only way to ensure that actually works is to maximize the number of, of parties that are participating in the network. And the only way to ensure that that's possible is to optimize the hell of it. <laughs> like right. actually make make it possible to, to handle all these messages. So to me, that, that seemed like the obvious thing, but um, it turns out that uh, basically we're the only ones really focused on that. And that's, I think, the most important thing for, for finance. Even something like payment, like you have somebody like, big fintech company that's doing payments, Visa or whatever, they need to guarantee that when merchants start receiving these payments, there isn't some set of small parties that can, you know, stop the flow of, of, of volume, right? Like, because their business, their livelihood depends on it. They actually care that the stuff gets settled within seconds versus days later. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I admire about you and I admire about Solana is you are focused on speed and you're focused on performance. You know, I think we're very enthusiastic about the crypto space generally, but there is a lot of cheerleading that goes on. There's a lot of financially driven decisions, whether it be, you know, uh, the big wave of ICOs that took place in 2017 or some of the other, uh, you know, more nefarious things that go on in that ecosystem. But you guys have had your heads down from the beginning, focused on building the highest quality product and not paying attention to the price of your coins or anything really financially driven. Um, but you were when you were building Solana in early 2018, the bottom fell out of the crypto market. It was sort of a challenging time for a lot of people that 
you know, once became enthusiastic about crypto and then pulled back a little bit. Goldman Sachs famously shuttered their plans to open a crypto trading desk. Did that pullback, that sort of bottom falling out of the crypto market in 2018, was that challenging at all for you? Did you lose heart at all? Uh, you know, and, and what generally motivates you to continue building Solana? It was like the media strike of the pedal of dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it was uh, it was definitely crypto winter, and um, we saw a lot of teams like you know fall apart. Um, we were always somewhat conservative. We never raised like a ton of money. We always had about like two years of runway, so we were always like, we got to build this thing as fast as we can and really focus on the key product that we think is going to make a difference, right? Like the the key differentiator. So for our from our perspective, it was probably. You know, one of those unexpected things that there's no way we could have wished for it, but was extremely beneficial to us as a team, right? Like it really forced us to focus and, and build the right thing. Um, you know, this is like every Silicon Valley book has all these all these lessons. You should do X, Y, and Z, right? Like focus on the key thing, but the product, you know, go for the most important users, worry about product market fit above, above everything else. But, you know, a lot of luck, and the environment forces you to make those decisions. I think given all the options, like uh, some of our competitors raise hundreds of millions of dollars, I think in some ways you risk them way too early, right? They didn't have the same kind of hunger and drive. Right. Uh, you know, this uh, Salt Talks is a series that we bring to both people that are very deep in the crypto world and also some people with a little bit less knowledge and experience. So this is one of those questions that is addressed more to that introductory crowd, but you've been very vocal about the fact that if you don't control your keys, uh, you don't really participate in crypto in its truest sense. So for those that are less familiar, could you explain the reasons why controlling your keys is so important? So in, in a financial way, purely from financial perspective, if you have custody of your keys and there's some value associated to those keys, 100% of the network can be corrupted and it's impossible for it to steal your funds, right? Like it's totally guaranteed. This guarantee that your keys provide is the cryptographic certainty that you have custody of, of that thing. Um, and you know, when you're talking about like something like dollars, it's a peer-to-peer -peer guarantee between you and Circle, which has this ledger right, that's represented by you know this, this cryptography in Solana, but the money's in fact in fact in a bank right somewhere. So that peer-to-peer -peer relationship, I have keys that represent dollars in Solana. Circle has those dollars in a bank. The entire Solana network could be 100% corrupted, and there's no way to break that as long as the keys are secure, like between you and Circle. Now, that's really what allows the state to scale and really allows the network like Solana to operate much more like a switch, like an AT&T or, or like a pure infrastructure information provider. The only thing that it's doing is making sure that this data is propagated and everybody can receive it, but it really has no control over the values or anything that, that is the money that's actually in store. It has zero control over. Um, so that that's a very important thing, but from a decentralization kind of like, where is this industry going? If everybody holds their funds at Coinbase, Coinbase has a single key that represents all of those assets. It it becomes kind of like the focal point for like finance, right? 
it's might as well use a bank, right? Like, what is the difference? There's differences, right? There's like security between Coinbase and UFC. You got better APIs, maybe cheaper wires, but the users don't actually get to have those guarantees because they're still on the hook for Coinbase to, you know, do the right thing. <laughs> um, right. Like removing all those obstacles is what allows an app developer, like an application developer that wants to provide, you know, returns to their users to build something purely with code, never trusting, you know, without any trust, never taking custody of anyone's funds, but allowing to coordinate, you know, 100 million cryptographic keys to borrow and run from each other and start giving them real returns without any middlemen. Like right. if, if this is possible in software, you don't need a third party like Coinbase in the middle to pay you now their three, 4,000 engineers, <laughs> right? This is like, you, you look at something like Uniswap, uh, if folks have never heard of Ethereum are, you know, fiercest competitor, right? Like Uniswap is like 10 people. It's an exchange that has like 32,000 pairs traded on it, <laughs> but right. 10 people because it's a bit of code that just coordinates people, right? It doesn't actually take custody. And this is where I think the power of crypto is this ability for very small teams to build highly leveraged software that creates these new financial instruments or similar instruments to what you have in traditional finance, but it removes all possibilities of failure and fraud. And that's the magic of it, right? You actually need people with self-custody to go exercise their power. I mean, one of the things we're so excited about uh, for SALT in September is getting you, Sam, and Jeremy Allaire from Circle on stage together to talk about just basically the new uh, financial infrastructure that you're building on sort of DeFi uh, crypto rails, if you will, between USDC, the stablecoin uh, that was launched by Circle, obviously what Sam is building at FTX and also at Serum, uh, and how Solana uh, all plays into that as as uh, basically the, the optimum base layer for all that. But I want to talk about, and this is not something that you guys developed, just to be clear again, but Star Atlas is a uh, a play-to-earn game that's being launched on the Solana blockchain that people are very excited about. The idea of play-to-earn games in general fascinate me and I think have a, a massive future. Could you talk about play-to-earn gaming? Could you explain to people what it is and, and why there's so much excitement around Star Atlas? Um, so gaming, I think, is, is one of those uh, new, ver- new opportunities for crypto, but something that everyone always believed was going to happen because... Like, I don't know if you ever played like Ultima Online, Request, World of Warcraft. I started with Ultima Online. I remember as a teenager, I went to the bank, got a cashier's check, mailed it to somebody through the sale mail to get an item in Ultima Online. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, that like, that process of a person, right? Like actually paying money for a digital item that they have no ownership of, it exists, right? There's secondary markets for World of Warcraft gold. Uh, Ultima um, Online as well had some, and like Eve Online, which is a, a space game for very sophisticated economies around its its units. Um, those things exist and they run. And Star Atlas is a, a, an attempt to make it fully on chain, use all the like, same leverage and technology that like you know you have the best market makers in the world using Serum to to trade. You cannot use that inside an exchange for like you know, crystals or energy units, whatever, inside Star Atlas to build your spaceship. How cool is that, right? Like it's all in one single giant computer, right? That doesn't really care if it's trading Bitcoin and dollars or 
you know, in-game like units. Um, that that is like that's the aspect of it. It's like, can we build a game that is owned by the players that are generating their own content, and that content is valuable because there are consumers like players that just want to kind of pay. They don't want to play through the game. They don't want to earn those items, but they just want to have the experience, right? And is that self-sufficient, right? Do you have enough people that want to effectively own the game and be those content creators and earn a living from it and enough consumers that want to just experience parts of it? Um, it's, it's, uh, I think something that feels like science fiction, right? So probably five years away. So we should start working on it now, right? Like, like I was ready saying. player one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's the, uh, exactly. the popular book and movie ready player one that you, you know, I read the book many years ago and, and said, wow, you know, I could see our future resembling that in some way. But then you start to look at, at things like, uh, you know, metaverse gaming, play to earn gaming, something like star Atlas. And you're like, wow, we're not that far away from that future where, where people are going to derive a lot of pleasure and probably spend a lot of time uh, in these virtual worlds. And it, it starts to help you crystallize in your mind why NFTs are so valuable and why you know virtual digital real estate has value. Because at the end of the day, if we live in a, in a highly virtual world, this is an oversimplification, but there's no reason why those things shouldn't have you know, the same type of value that people derive from, from physical goods and physical real estate. Um, last question I have for you is, you know, what's, what is uh, in your plans for the future? Obviously, you guys have had an explosive summer of growth, like I mentioned in the opening, it's been Solana summer, even though you guys are very humble and, and, uh, you know, or avoid the cheerleading that exists in a lot of areas of crypto, but what are the next topics of focus for you and the team at Solana Labs? So, I'm a, you know, we're, we're super engineering having company, like we were mostly focused on the boring side, which is like, let's build a, a fast operating system, fast database. <laughs> and it's, it's almost like the, I don't, I mean, it's oddly like boring work, you know, we have like a bunch of, you know, performance improvements. It's mostly downhill engineering. Like you got to benchmark, test, analyze, improve. And that that's something we've been doing, I think, for the last year um, since we launched. And we're continuously incrementally improving and improving everything. Um, maybe that's part of the success story is that like iteration is, is the... Right. The most important thing when it comes to engineering, uh, I think that was an Elon Musk quote. <laughs> so that that's really like our goal is how do we iterate and improve the network as fast as we can. Right. Do you think, you know, do you think your focus on development is is something that attracted people like Sam uh, to the project? You know, and and you know, I think Sam, as much as anyone, he again takes sort of a sober view of crypto. He understands the bull case. He understands the the bear case for, for certain protocols and for the industry as a whole, do you think your heads down mentality is something that's attractive to, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, developers themselves and also people that are building on top of blockchains? Um, he's not an engineer, right? So this was really like, I think, in, in a lot of respects, this was driven by the engineering team that was like, okay, this is going to work. Let's, right. let's just go build it. <laughs> uh, it feels like, you know, to maybe to outside folks, it feels like there's some master plan. Uh, it's not. There's not. It's like kind of like fire-driven development. Uh, what is the most important thing that we get to fix right now is very much part of our daily routine. Um, and what it, what that means, I think, for the future is, is I think, more kind of like, you know, like I mentioned before, right? You don't notice Moore's Law when you're in it. 
but those improvements, right, exponential improvements occur over large spans of time become really, really staggering. So this is what I hope we should see, like in the next four to you know, eight years, imagine 100 million people with self-custody in a single network or a billion people with self-custody in a single network. What that, what impact that will have is like very unpredictable. It's like me in 1996 telling you that sharing pictures of cats and babies with your friends and family is going to be worth a trillion dollars. You would tell me that I'm crazy, right? Like, <laughs> so that, how do we predict where this stuff goes is really, really hard for us. It's like the folks that are heads down in the, in the hardware and the, the software. Well, Anatoly, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. We're, we're super excited about Solana. Uh, you know, I, I think the more you talk to people in the space, the more impressed they are, not only with the, the amazing technology you've built, but also the power of the network effects uh, of some of these projects that are coming online. And, and certainly you guys have a ton of momentum. So we're rooting for you. We're excited to see you in person in September and have that conversation uh, between you, Sam and Jeremy on stage at SALT. And, uh, and, and we'll be, again, rooting for your success going forward. But thank you so much for joining us. Anthony, you have a final word for Anatoly before we let him go? I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant exposition of what you created. And, uh, you know, part of genius, frankly, is simplicity. I think you did an amazing job of explaining uh, where things are and why you guys are uh, on the cusp of something huge. It's already huge, but it's going to be even exponentially more huge. So uh, congratulations to you, Anatoly. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Anatoly Yakovenko, the founder of Solana. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website on demand at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these SALT talks. We love educating people, especially on this new emerging asset class, uh, crypto, uh, Web3, all these types of topics. So again, please uh, share this talk with your curious uncle. Uh, but on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.